Hello, and welcome to The G Word. My name is Amanda Bikini, and I'm the clinical lead for genetic counselling at Genomics England. We know that cancer is a very common disease. About one in two people will develop cancer at some point in their lifetime. And cancer is a disease of the genome, involving many changes to a person's genome over time, as well as other factors. Only a small proportion of all cancers are inherited, but this can have a significant impact for those families who have a much higher risk of cancer and options to reduce their risk. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Helen Hansen, consultant clinical geneticist, Kelly Kohut, consultant genetic counselor, and Rochelle Gold, patient representative and co-founder of BRCA Journey. We'll be discussing the CanGene CanVar program, which aims to link NHS clinical care and research to expand access to genetic testing and care for people with inherited cancers. So welcome Rochelle, Helen, and Kelly to The G Word. Thank you for joining me today. Let's start with some introductions. Rochelle, over to you. Hi, everyone. I'm Rochelle, and I am one of the patient reps on the Kanji Canvar research program. I also co-founded an organization called BRCA Journey, who helps to raise awareness of the BRCA genetic mutation amongst both clinicians and uh, the community, and also support people who might be at risk of the mutation or who are thinking about testing or all the way through to having maybe preventative treatment or preventative surgery and support those with that decision. We're not genetic counsellors, but we do basically talk to people about our experience and our knowledge that we have of what it's like as a patient to be someone who's living with a mutation. Thank you. And could you briefly tell us what BRCA is and how you came to be a, a, a patient? So BRCA is a genetic mutation that puts people at greater risk of breast and ovarian cancer. And my mum had the mutation. In fact, she had two of the mutations, which apparently is quite rare. And she she passed away from breast cancer. And just before she passed away, I found out that I had the genetic mutation as well. And so I personally have had her preventative surgery and reconstruction to prevent myself getting from breast and ovarian cancer. So I got involved in being a, a patient rep so that I can advocate for people who may have the mutation, but also make sure that actually the more people as many people as possible can be tested and be aware that they have the mutation have that power to have that knowledge to be able to do something about it should they so wish thank you so much for sharing that with us kelly over to you hello everyone i'm kelly kohut i'm the lead consultant genetic counselor at the southwest thames center for genomics which is based at saint george's hospital in london And for many years, I've been working in clinical practice and genetic counseling, seeing patients and their families regarding personal or family history of cancer, offering genetic testing where that's available, and then giving the results and helping to refer people on for surveillance programs and to discuss risk-reducing options, and also help a lot with communication within families, sharing the information from the genetic test results. And for the past few years, I've also been doing my own research as part of the CanGene CanVar program funded by the charity Cancer Research UK. And this has involved partnering directly with patients and other expert stakeholders to co-design a patient website to support decision making around the genetic chances of getting cancer in families. Thank you. And Helen? Hi everyone, so I'm Helen Hansen. I'm a consultant in cancer genetics and I'm based at the Peninsula Regional Genetic Service, which is in Exeter. 
And in my clinical practice, I see patients who either have a cancer diagnosis to consider whether they may have an inherited susceptibility or people who maybe have a family history of cancer to try and determine if they are at risk due to their family history. Like Kelly and Rochelle, I've also been involved in the Canjean Canvar program. For the last four years, um, I've been involved in Work Package 3 of the program, which is developing clinical guidelines with, for patients who have an inherited predisposition to cancer. I will also be fortunate enough to be given some funding to carry on this work beyond the program in the, ex, the new NIHR Exeter Biomedical Research Centre. Also, I'm currently chair of the UK Cancer Genetics Group, who, again, has an aim of improving the management of patients who have an inherited predisposition to cancer. So it's been really great to work on all these different things and and, and sort of try and bring things together to try and improve care for patients who do have rare inherited genetic conditions predisposing to cancer. Fantastic. Thanks, everyone. So Kelly, I wondered if you could start us off by just explaining a little bit more about how genetics and genomics is relevant to cancers, especially inherited cancers. Why is this an important thing to talk about? The availability of genetic testing has been increasing steadily over the years. And currently, for pretty much anyone who's been diagnosed with cancer, there should be some awareness around the possible benefit of knowing the genetics behind the development of that cancer and whether any genetic or genomic testing might help to choose more personalized treatments or surgical options for that cancer that's been diagnosed. There is also the possibility of finding out genetic information that's familial or inherited, which could mean that the information is not only important for the person who is being treated for cancer at the current time, but also as a next step, informing relatives that they might have a higher chance of getting cancers in the future due to a genetic variant and that they could ask their GP for a referral to genetics to be offered genetic testing and to find out about their chances of getting cancer and the choices for for how to manage that. Thank you. So there are clearly some important things that someone would do differently when they know they have an inherited cancer. So Helen, how can we make sure that clinicians and patients and families know what to do in these situations? Yes, so so following on from Kelly, you know, explaining that the amount of genetic testing that we can offer has really increased over the last five to 10 years, and we're now in a position to offer many more patients genetic testing. It's important that we also consider what to do with that information when we discover somebody does have a pathogenic variant or mutation in a cancer predisposition gene. And there's over 100 different cancer predisposition genes described. And and actually having a variant in one of these genes is, is rare. It's it difficult, unlike other um, conditions in, in medicine due to their rarity, to, to really understand how best to manage these patients. So But what's very important is that we try to understand how best we can help patients manage their cancer risk based on their lifetime risk of cancer and the particular cancers that they can develop and and ensure that patients across the country are all being given the same advice, the same information about their cancer risks. So through the Kanji and Canvar program, we've had a whole work package which is devoted to clinical guideline development where we've looked at a number of these genes and looked at the evidence that is available um, in terms of cancer risks, the utility of surveillance or early detection of cancers in that condition, um, and also whether risk-reducing surgery could be offered and really tried to 
bring together groups of experts to discuss the evidence because for some genes it really is quite limited due to the rarity of the condition. But the overarching aim is really to develop guidance that is relevant, can be offered in our current clinical practice and is consistent to all patients who have a variant in one of these genes. And you mentioned that many of these inherited cancer conditions are very rare. So is there a need to look internationally or collaborate internationally? How do you pull some of these things together when there's so little information? So we definitely have found it really helpful to have international collaborations. Some of these conditions, there may be very few patients in the UK who have this condition. So each individual clinician who works in cancer genetics may have only seen one or two patients with the condition themselves. And and therefore, collaborating with international colleagues has been very helpful. And we have um, recently published some guidance for a condition called BAP1 tumor predisposition syndrome, which increases um, an individual's lifetime risk of developing mesothelioma, which is a type of lung cancer renal cancer and melanomas of the skin and eye. Um, And this is a rare condition, but we worked with European colleagues to develop a set of guidelines advising what surveillance patients should have. Um, So looking for melanomas, looking for early detection of kidney cancers. And so having that international collaboration has been really very helpful because in the UK that there are so few cases per centre of individuals who have that condition. Now, that sounds really helpful. Now, Rochelle, we know that shared decision-making is so important in healthcare. How, how can we make sure that the voices of patients are reflected within these guidelines that we're developing and that it's clear to them what needs to happen for their healthcare? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really important that patients are involved in the development of the guidelines, first of all. And actually within those guidelines, there is stuff that talks about that being about shared decision-making. I mean, a lot of these guidelines are in a a language that are this quite a clinical language that is is not necessarily accessible to to patients themselves. So it, it, it's really important that that they're part of the creation of them, but also that there's, there's there's things out there that enable people to understand what are these guidelines about, what do these guidelines actually mean in in practice. You know, when you you, you find out that you have a particular genetic mutation. You, of course, first place you go probably is Google and you, you find a hell of a lot of information and you find a, all sorts from different countries and different people and different organisations. And, and, and you're like, well, which is the thing I need to look at? Which is the thing that actually tells me what's really going on? Which is the thing that really helps me to understand what this actually means for me and what, what should happen to me and what is the, the pathway for me, etc. And, you know, I think we also need to recognise that people have different levels of health literacy as well. I am someone who can probably navigate my way around the very complex system, which is the NHS, maybe better than other people. But there are plenty of people out there who, you know, for one, this is new to people. This is a completely new experience, new thing that's happened to them, a completely new thing to understand. And actually, if you're not used to being part of health systems and navigating your way around it, it can be quite scary because this is saying, what does mutation mean? What does it mean for me? What does it mean to my future? What does it mean for my family? And then there's just all this information. So there needs to be something somewhere that talks about this in some sort of lay way and helps people to understand what this means for them and helps them to engage with it. And, and, and to some extent, that's where my organisation was sort of born from, that, that thing about having somebody who can just talked about it in normal words in normal terms and normal I don't know views of, of what these guidelines actually do mean and and 
the fact is they are just guidelines. They don't tell you this is what you do. This You're this person, you're in this circumstance, you do this. It doesn't. So there's there's some ambiguity there that needs to be navigated by the patient and they need support in order to do that. That's a great point. Um, having previously worked as a genetic counsellor, also seeing patients with inherited cancer conditions, you it really strikes you how individual each person's journey and decisions are. They're thinking about all kinds of factors in their life or in their family's life. So navigating through that and understanding, do I have surgery or do I have screening? And how do I make decisions about this is based on my previous experiences and so many other factors. So having access to different sources of support to help people navigate through that feels incredibly important. Great. So you, I mean, we've been talking a bit about inherited cancers in general, but you're all here because you're involved in the Kenjean Canvar program. Um, So Kelly, could you tell us a bit more about what that is and what the program is aiming to achieve? The Kenjean Canvar program is a five-year grant funded by Cancer Research UK, and it involves six different work packages. So lots of Experts all around the UK have been um, allowed to have some dedicated time to work on specific areas where there there hasn't been enough you know resource put in in the in the past, which has resulted in a real gap between the research and the current findings, and actually using that information to benefit patients by bridging the gap and putting those research findings into clinical care. My program is in Work Package 4, which is co-designing patient resources, which are decision support interventions. So basically, it's a website, and it can be printed as a booklet, and it's interactive, and it's up to date, and it's personalized to help convey the complicated information about genetic um, cancer conditions. Um, in a way that's meaningful and patients can understand and that helps them with their personalized shared decision-making. So the CanGene Canvar program is underpinned by the patient reference panel, and they've been involved, including Rochelle and others, from the conception of the idea of the program and all the way through with various different activities, helping to look at um, documents as they're developed before they're finalized um, and giving input in focus groups and one-on-one and email um, conversations. So they're called upon frequently to share their lived experience and say, you know, what's important to them when they make decisions. And that's really helped to drive the direction of the research and inform the results before they're published. Right. That sounds like a really helpful approach to developing something in a way that's really working very closely with um, with patients and participants. Uh, so, Rochelle, it sounded like you were involved in that. Can, can you tell us a bit about what that was what that was like from your perspective? I mean, it's really rewarding. It's really motivating to be actually one of the the, the, the patient reps in relation to this. I've, I've found, and I don't want to make uh, my colleagues from the team blush, but it's just such a inclusive environment where as a patient, your voice is really welcomed, really heard. It's really very much a, a partnership. And, it's, and that's been really, really important and really, really it makes you feel for, for valued as a patient and it, and actually the importance of the, the, the lived experience and the patient view um, has, has, has really 
is, is really been prominent in this. And I would say that's why it's helped to develop such a useful tool. The fact as a patient that people are really valuing and taking into account our lived experience, our views, our understanding. I mean, it's been quite fun in some of the sessions. There has been some good debates and it's been really good and really useful. And I think some of the people who maybe haven't encountered a patient panel before and engaged with patients' lived experience actually has probably learned a lot from it because we are pretty empowered to use our voice in this. And it's been a really great experience. Oh, I'd love to dig into those debates a bit more. Kelly, were there things that you changed in in the decision aid as a result of some of those discussions or as a result of that input that maybe surprised you? We have made changes based directly on what we've learned from the patients presenting their lived experiences. And they've been very open and honest with us. And like Rochelle, I felt so privileged to be part of this real partnership with the patients. And as a genetic counselor who had many years of experience in clinical practice before moving into this research role, I've been really um, surprised, but also gratified by how much I've been able to learn from the patients in a different way, because I'm sort of taking a step back. I'm there as a researcher, not directly as a clinician looking after someone one-on-one in clinic and just thinking about their specific needs at that time. But because I'm hearing from people from all different situations, different parts of the UK um, and other countries, and maybe it's 10, 20 years since they had their genetic diagnosis, I'm actually getting a bigger picture of their care needs that we might not have heard about as the clinicians on the ground because they might not be coming back to tell us if we haven't opened the door to that conversation about their personal situation or who's influencing them or what's important to them when they make decisions. We just might not have learned about things they're grappling with and they've gone off and maybe Googled or they've found a patient support group or something else to support them where, you know, I've in my research and in my interviews and the focus groups and all of the activities, I've been learning about the gaps in care, what we might be needed to address that. So yeah, the decision aid has not been yet rolled into clinical practice, but We're very keen to get it out there and everyone wants it and wants to use it, but we want to make sure that we've developed it in a robust, patient-centered way as much as we can first before we put it out. It will always be updated and go through refinements, but um, hopefully in the new year, we will um, be able to to let people start using it in in the real world situation. That's great. I'm sure you're looking forward to that. I was just going to add to that, that in terms of the guideline development, we've had a number of consensus meetings where we've made decisions about guidelines for, for example, genes that can predispose to ovarian cancer. And we've included patients from the patient reference panel and, um, and from other patient groups in those consensus meetings. And again, as Kelly said, that's been so helpful because it's really brought something to those discussions. And it is a different perspective than when we see patients in clinic, because often we're seeing them at the point of genetic testing or maybe for their results, but actually that doesn't give us that overview of the whole patient journey and the whole you know patient experience so um i think that has been really one of the benefits of this program and um and kelly's been really sort of pioneering you know the the sort of co-design of patient information leaflets decision aids with patients so rather than clinicians designing things for patients which we think that they will understand it's actually working with patients from the start to to get things right the first time so um 
yeah, it's been a really great part of this program. Rochelle, did you want to add something further here? Yes, I think it's one of the sessions that we had as a, you know, patient and clinician and researcher session that really stood out for me was when we started looking at, well, how do people make decisions? And we had academics and researchers who've looked at how do people make decisions, talk about the knowledge base and the research base that we have about it. And then as as a larger group of patients, we got together to discuss about, well, how have we made decisions? And it was really interesting because I don't think I've ever reflected on how I made the decision and, and what came from that in terms of what I did about having my mutation and then hearing about how other people did as well. That session really, really does stick in my mind. And actually, I learned a lot as a as a person about decision-making theory, but also about myself and was reflecting on how I make decisions and so so as a patient involved in this it's not just always about what I bring to this but actually as a, as a patient rep you, you actually get a lot from it too and um, I, I've, I've learned a lot from the, the colleagues that I've worked with. That's fantastic so it's really great to hear the careful thought that's gone into this a real excellent example that hopefully others can can look to and and I think Kelly hasn't hasn't your work won an award recently as well? So we, as a, as a whole team, won an award from the Academic Health Science Network and the NHS Confederation. It was called the Innovate Awards 2023. And this was for excellence in patient and public involvement in transformation and innovation. So yes, it was a chance to showcase the really positive experience that we've had. I think on all sides, we've learned a lot from each other and just to hope to inspire other researchers and clinicians to take this co-design approach with patients because we all benefit from it so much. And we think that the resources, the guidelines, everything that we develop will be better from the start if we work together throughout the project. So we're really hoping to encourage others to consider from the beginning of their idea about a research program or clinical development to bring the patients in right at the start because they can they can really help to, to guide where things go next and then throughout. And even through to publications, being on committees, being co-chairs, presenting together at conferences, that can all help to really share the experience and the benefits that we get from, from the partnership. That's great. Congratulations. So coming back now to some of the aims of Kenji and Canvar, really trying to bridge that gap, as you said, between research and clinical care, I guess that means there are some needs that still aren't being met that are falling through that gap at the moment. Helen, fr- from your perspective, what are some of those unmet needs that we currently have or, or areas that are still needing improvement? So I think there's still lots that we have to learn, particularly about individual risks for patients. So we might have patients who all have a pathogenic variant in a certain gene, but their risks might be slightly different due to factors that can modify their risk and trying to understand some of those risks better so that we can really have much better informed discussions with patients about their lifetime cancer risks, I think would be really helpful. And this um, work package, one of the program is really focusing on that and looking at some of the information we have through national registries and trying to understand risks for specific genes better, which will help our discussions with patients. And then we still need to understand more, which is slightly outside the program, but understand more how surveillance, so early 
cancer detection through screening such as mammograms or ultrasounds for different cancers can help detect cancers early. So there's still lots of information that we need to, to learn. I think, you know, Kelly's decision aid, um, which has been focused on Lynch syndrome, I think that can be translated across lots of other genetic conditions because for each gene, there is a different set of decisions, you know, whether and, and for some of the genes that we've developed clinical guidelines for, we might be recommending slightly different management or for some of the genes we've recommended maybe a minimum and an extended level of surveillance and particularly for a gene called DISA-1 where, you know, we've offered different options in childhood. Decision aids would potentially really help um, in some of those other genes, you know, building on the work that's already been developed as, as part of the programme. So although the, the programme is is you know, coming to an end in the next year, there's, I think there's still lots of work that, that to be done in this area. It certainly sounds like you've all collectively been proving how much this work is worthwhile. So that's great to hear. Rochelle, how about for you? Are there areas that you would see as kind of unmet needs or areas where we or research can improve to help patients and families with inherited cancers? Yeah, I mean, similar to some of the stuff that Helen was saying, knowing more about what happens when people have certain different different types of treatment, different types of surveillance and monitoring and, and stuff like that. I think there's things that are evolving all the time. I think in the end, though, when you think about gaps, there's nothing that's going to be written down on paper that says, if you have this, do this. In the end, every single patient is an individual with individual circumstances I think until we actually know, okay, we know that if you do this, then this happens and this happens and this happens. And this is going to be your chances of survival if you go through this route. And and even then, when you've got the chances of survival, you know, that that's, that's literally just a, a probability. It's not a binary, this will happen or that will happen. So there's, there's always going to be a need for discussion. There's always going to be a need for these brilliant genetic counsellors that we have to talk us through some of those complex decisions that we have to make. And I think, yes, we'll get more information, we'll get more evidence, we'll get more understanding of, of treatments that work best for different people, and we'll get it out there. And we absolutely do need to do that. But even when you have all the information you need, even if you made a solid decision, I mean, when I found out I had the mutation, immediately I was like, right, that's it. I have preventative surgery after what happened to my mum. It was an absolute no-brainer for me. For other people, it might not have been, you know, if they were in a different life state. I'd had my kids. I didn't need my breasts, didn't need my ovaries, didn't need my womb. It was, you know, it was pretty clear cut. But even then, you know, when I was thinking about the different treatment and when to have it and when to have that surgery, I got most of my information from bumping to someone in a lady's toilet who has been through it before. So, I think there's always going to be an unmet need in terms of being able to have those conversations to take in all the information you do have and make some sort of informed decision. Because I think like what came out of that decision making workshop and all the other things that we did about, you know, probabilities, you know, it's all just a model. It's a model of what might happen. And the thing is, all of these like models, that they're, they're all wrong. They just help you maybe make a discussion or a decision that might be right. You just never know. And I, I mean, I still don't know if as soon as decisions I made were the right decisions either. So there needs to be that space for people to consider their options. You're never going to get the definitive answer. Yeah, an important message there about, you know, we, we talk a lot about using digital tools, you know, to be able to do things better at scale, better ways to give information. But I think what you're saying is we just we can't replace certain elements of human connection. We can't sort of underestimate the, the value of that. 
you made a, a really good point earlier as well about how so many of these decisions have uncertainty and it can be really difficult to navigate the complexities of a health system, perhaps even more challenging if you, know, you have struggles with health literacy or if you are an underserved group in some way or another. Now, Kelly, I think you mentioned that some of your research has also touched on developing information for underserved groups. Can you tell us a bit more about that? We recognized that there are many underserved groups that are not represented in research and literature and applied for additional funding to do some specific targeted projects in the community. So there's a couple of examples I can mention. One was inspired by colleagues at the Royal Marsden who made some videos about prostate screening and they had black men and their family members talking about this in a relaxed barbershop setting. And um, through reaching out into the community, I was connected with Lee Townsend from Macmillan, who's been making these kind of barbershop videos around London for the last seven years. And he's focused on a number of topics like mental health, vaccination and cancer. So we connected and it was really about making that connection in the community as, you know, him as a trusted leader and having formed partnerships with some of the barbers who opened up their barbershops for these filming sessions and went way beyond that. And one of them has actually trained as a counselor himself because he said, men are coming for a haircut and actually they have a bald head. They don't need the haircut. <laughs> They're coming actually for the chat. And because it's benefiting their mental health and they felt able to open up about topics that they wouldn't talk about even at home with their family members or with their friends, such as symptoms of cancer, going for cancer screening or presenting for treatment if they if they were symptomatic. So it's really powerful. We've, we've actually filmed six videos with Black and minority ethnicity patients talking about their cancer experience. And they've really both helped others by setting an example that it's okay to talk about these things. And also through the process, an added benefit was helping themselves. So it was a peer support. Um, when they came to the barbershop to film their stories, they didn't need to stay for the whole time, but they did stay for the three hours. And they said afterwards how helpful it was just to hear others in a similar situation sharing their stories. One of them told me he now feels able to, you know, he's got up on stage and shared his cancer journey. And he's been going to these patient groups and talking when he didn't feel able to do that in the past. So it's been really a great project. And we're going to be adding the videos to the Canjean Canvar patient decision aid website soon. And another thing that we've done in, in the diet and lifestyle section of the website where it talks about things that people might do to lower their chances of getting cancer. I've partnered with Professor Ranjit Manchandra, who had some colleagues in India, and made some infographics that specifically depict patients of a South Asian heritage and the types of foods that they might be choosing to give examples of how they might, for example, try to get more fiber in their diet to lower the chances of getting bowel cancer. Um, or try to eat more um, fruits and vegetables or drink less alcohol. So it shows images of Indian patients. And what people have told me in my research, my interviews, focus groups, is they tend to go and try to search for something that means something to them. So they're looking for someone like me, 
you know, there, and then one of the, the patients that I filmed, she said that, you know, she had breast cancer as a young black woman and she was only finding white middle-aged women on the websites. And she thought, why is this? Is it, do black women not get breast cancer or young women like me? So for her to share her story, it was very brave, but also, you know, has the potential to help a lot of other people in the community. That's really powerful. So understanding those nuances in different cultures or communities or groups is just so crucial to really being able to also develop information or messages or provide care that's going to really reach those people where they are, I guess. Yeah. Right. This has been a really fantastic conversation. Um, If we could end with a final question, I'd be great to hear from your perspective what just one thing that you'd like to see in the next sort of five to 10 years when it comes to sort of care for inherited cancer susceptibility conditions? Helen, let's start with you. So I think that, you know, in developing the guidelines, one of the things that we've you know, had to struggle or, or grapple with is, is the lack of evidence and the lack of data that's available for some of these conditions. So I'm, I'm really hoping that over the next five to 10 years that we will see much more data on cancer risks and outcomes of surveillance programs for people who have an inherited predisposition. And then we can utilize that information to be able to share with patients to enable them to make the best decisions about their care. There's a number of initiatives that are currently underway, you know, thinking about how we might better collect data on patients with inherited cancer predisposition in the UK through registries. So I'm really hoping that we manage to get some useful data that we can then use in our discussions with patients going forward. Thank you. Kelly? I think that over the next five, 10 years, as awareness and availability of genetic testing continues to increase, we know that there will be more and more families identified who have a higher genetic risk of getting certain cancers. And we can't replace that personalized counseling that takes place face-to-face or sometimes telephone and video appointments with a healthcare professional. So there are more resources needed for the NHS to deliver this. But to to complement that, the patient website decision aid that we have co-designed is one way to help what patients tell us, you know, they would like access to a central trusted source of information that's up to date. Importantly in genetics, it's very fast moving. There's a lot of research, guidelines are changing, and it's very crucial to have information that's correct and relevant for people and also meaningful. So we can only do that by partnering together with patients and co-designing things rather than designing them and asking them afterwards if they're useful. So it's a it's a partnership all the way through that we all benefit from. And I think that, you know, as I said earlier, it's not a one size fits all. Decision making is so personal and shared decision making is recommended, but we don't always have enough time in clinic to really address all of the issues that the patient might not have even thought about themselves. So having something like a patient facing resource website booklet that they can look at in their own time, prepare for their questions that they really want to focus on in clinic, it might help give them the confidence to bring something up that they might not have otherwise. So it's about a a number of different ways of helping to support people. We've identified that there are gaps in care that we could try to help address if we have more resource in future. So those are my aspirations. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. And Rochelle, to you. I think for, for me, I would like to have as many people as possible to understand and know about their, their genetic mutation status. 
we know people don't even know about the fact that they may have a genetic mutation that may make them more susceptible to cancers. And we know that even then, if you do, can you get access to, to testing to know whether you've got it or not? And that is the most important thing. You know, my mum, if she'd known that some of this was related, if she'd had that awareness that, you know, breast and ovarian cancer in your family was related to potential genetic risk, maybe she would have pushed harder to get testing. And maybe she wouldn't have been tested when it's too late. And, and, and in the end, all this knowledge and empowering people with knowledge, whether that be about empowering pe people with the knowledge that they may have a genetic mutation, there's the possibility of the genetic mutation, that these things are related, empowering people through the knowledge of knowing their, their genetic mutation status, all that is something that, that, that saves lives. And in from my view, it undoubtedly probably has saved my life. And so my hope for the future is that we can empower more people like me and we can save more lives. Thank you to our guests today, Dr. Helen Hansen, Rochelle Gold and Kelly Kohut. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love your support. Please subscribe to The G Word on your favourite podcast app and like, share and rate us wherever you listen. I've been your host, Amanda Pacchini. This podcast was edited by Mark Hendrick at Ventu Digital and produced by Nima Kalachand. Thanks for listening.